Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by UNA, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Chris Lance. Chris is a senior director at UNA, a group purchasing organization that provides the Sourcing Hero its home. Chris comes back and joins me every month to tackle a current news story or a topic of interest from his own point of view, and these conversations never disappoint. So hi, Chris. Thanks for being back for your monthly stint on the Sourcing Hero podcast. And here we go. How are you, Kelly? (laughs) I am doing just fine. Um, Now, this month's topic is something that you and I have talked about in the past. We've talked about the food supply, especially globally, Mm -hmm. some of the issues that have happened in places like Sri Lanka and the Netherlands, farmers pushing back, food shortages. And it seems that you and I were ahead of our time because there was recently an article that came out. It was written by Bill Wirtz. Uh, He's the senior policy analyst at the Consumer Choice Center. This article ran in the Boston Herald, and it was titled, Agriculture Set to Become Next Hot Political Issue. So I instantly thought, ah, Chris Lance. And as we've talked about in the past, Agriculture is at the cross-section of many of today's top hot-button issues. I mean, certainly food, but it also comes down to perspectives on regulation, labor, environmentalism, especially energy consumption. Um, and there's money in the Inflation Reduction Act, something that we've, we've also talked about here, to help farmers start to make the green energy transition. But as we've talked about in other places, that didn't work out particularly well in the Netherlands. And despite these good intentions, farming remains a high-risk way of making a living. So I think the first thing that I'd like to chat with you about today is let's talk about this sort of risk versus reward versus regulation versus resilience. How do you think we can balance the need to, for instance, have regulations that maybe reduce the use of harmful pesticides without making it impossible for farms to function without being dependent on government subsidies. You see what I'm setting up? Kind of like a how do we help them do what we ultimately want them to do without taking away their independence? Yeah, see, so so, so you're right. First of all, this is a really hot topic, but at the same time, Kelly, I'm, I'm not certain even still that a lot of people are really giving, at least in my opinion, the attention it deserves. Yeah. Um, I, like a lot of times given, and don't get me wrong, there's some pretty wild headlines right now, but a lot of people, it seems to be just scrolling right past them. And like, you know, what I've always, I forget where I read it, but what I've always kind of held on to is that keep in mind when we're talking about food, that here in the States, we're really about nine meals away from just anarchy, yeah. right? You know, food food is a critical item. And so when we start talking about subsidies or regulations or things like that, I always, I wrote this down, Kelly. I know I'm not supposed to write anything, but uh, Henry Kissinger, he wrote, I think this quote was from him where it's, 
control oil and you control nations, Yes. control food and you control people. So I digress. That being said, <laughs> right? No, it, it definitely didn't work out overseas, not at least how I don't think the government intended. Um, you know, specifically in the Netherlands, I think they expected a lot of citizens and farmers to just roll over, but boy, they sure did. And I yeah. mean, whether whether there were tractor blockades, I think I think I saw a few raw clips of we'll call it uh, we'll call it very organic fertilizer being dumped <laughs> on cars and uh, high traffic areas. Yeah. That, that may have been France, though. But either way, they pushed back, and they're still pushing back. Um, so, to your point on it being political, uh, just a few months ago, I think it was in March. The Dutch, so they have this new, um, um, I guess, political party that came from all of this called the Farmer Citizen Movement. And it is now, after just the first election, it is the largest party in the Senate. Wow. So, yeah. So the people aren't speaking, like they're, they're shouting. So now to your point is how do we balance the, the, reg, the regulation? It's, I don't, I don't know, Kelly, I really don't, um, outside of just a flippant Dear government, stop. Leave it alone. I, I don't. I don't know. Um, but it, what I always fall back to is just my my questions. Just asking more questions. And so, why aren't farmers allowed to do what's best for their animals and crops like they've been doing for decades upon decades? I I personally tend tend to trust more what I hear from from citizens than I do whether it's the talking heads on TV or government yeah. officials. But that's that's just me though. But Having said that, you know, like we see what we're saying with like the um, that movement, um, I'm hearing farmers saying adamantly, you're being lied to. There is no problem that this climate change, this ESG, that it's actually to push farmers from the land. And I made one more note, but it's Ava, um, forgive me, Ava Vlardenbrock. It's like eight, 16 characters. So I'm sorry. <laughs> but Ava, she was actually a prominent. Uh, campaigner in that movement. And her direct quote was, for centuries, our farmers have produced food for millions of people worldwide. And instead of what those liars claim, they have done so in a responsible and sustainable way. But our cabinet doesn't care about nature. They have simply created a lie to steal our farmers' land. So Mm. it's pretty corporate of me. I've said all these words and I didn't really give you an answer. (laughs) But... (laughs) For me, it's, I think the farmers are the experts on how to find more efficient ways or safe ways to cultivate food. And I just don't see a role for the government to be involved with how it's made or how it's grown. I mean, to me, it's just not something that I I really trust them to handle. Um, So I'll I'll leave it there. I don't want to say too much more than that, I think. so. Well, you know, it's interesting. I I like your point about us all being nine meals from chaos, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because you quoted Henry Kissinger, and I just happen to have terrible podcast form here. I'm holding it up. No one, including you, can see this, but I swear this is true. The notebook that I'm using right now, the cover has a quote from Henry Kissinger on it, and it says, there cannot be a crisis. My schedule is already full. <laughs> uh, and it's yeah. And it's funny when we think about what's our perspective on the food supply versus what's happening in other parts of the world. Mm. There was an article in the paper this weekend about how we largely think of the pandemic as being over. The public health emergency is no longer in effect. 
But in other parts of the world, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. People in North Korea are starving to death uh, because those borders were so closed. They didn't want the disease coming in from China. And I don't know how effective they were with that, but they definitely didn't have food coming in. And so rather than dying from the virus, people are dying from starvation. And if you think about us only being nine meals, I guess on a traditional schedule, that's three days. Yeah, right. If we're three days from North Korea on any topic, that is not a great place to be, right? That's that's not where any of us want to be positioned. Um, And here's the other thing that I think about. So I live in this cute little New England town, Shrewsbury, Massachusetts, and farmer's market season is back. Mm. And there's such charm to going to a farmer's market. But I'll be honest, I'm amazed sometimes how expensive it is. If you want one of those little containers of strawberries or some fresh vegetables compared to the supermarket, you know, it is interesting to think about if we had to revert to a system of largely localized farms, how much more expensive everything would be versus going to the local supermarket where there's some level of commercial production. Mm -hmm. You know, we think inflation has made things expensive now. Things like eggs and basic vegetables and fruits, they would go through the roof. So even if things were available, oh my gosh, they would be priced out of most people's budgets. And back to effectively starving to death if we don't have a secure, affordable food supply. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's also dependent on who you talk to, right? That's where you start talking about those hyperinflation type situations, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's bring back the barter system and it's like, you know, eggs for sugar or things like that. Cause you know, right now I I think if every, if everybody in the States were to just say all grocery stores are closed or it's regulated out or something to that effect, right. I think it would break so many Americans. Um, especially if you're talking about people who are on like a fixed income or, or something like that. Um, I mean, we, you know, to your point, I think you, you just nailed it right there, Kelly. We keep talking about costs going down, right? With inflation, that's not what's happening. Like cost, <laughs> costs just aren't going up as fast. You know, inflation, it still isn't under control. And so kind of fitting into this theme, if you look at the timelines and details around some of this ESG and climate change and these executive orders, inflation is being caused by some of these policies. So anyway, to your point, my, so my family, we, we go to uh, our local farmer's market when it's, you know, when it's the season for it. And you're right. You'd think that a farmer's market go, Hey, I'm going direct to the supplier. This is going to be cheaper. You know, I, I learned and learned very quickly. That's not the case. Um, But the reason we keep going back is because most of the times the prices at those farmers markets, they reflect other elements Agreed. Um, of their growing process. Meaning like, you know, it's not just about that end stage of buying and selling, right? Kind of like a grocery store. Um, but in most cases, at least at our farmers market, you're buying a much, much higher quality of food uh, than, you'd, than you'd buy at the grocery store, which actually more than justifies the cost. So- I don't know. I mean, also fitting into the the, the theme of today's topic, um, there's actually more chemicals in foods, you know, at the at the processed foods. I'll say at the grocery stores. So, you know, really, what we're talking about when you, it's farmers market versus grocery store, and then the cost. It's well, what's the cost of your health really? You yeah. know, I think that's what we're talking about. 
Well, and it's and it's interesting too because so there's different forms of value, right? Certainly, mm-hmm. this is almost like uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, first basic need met by food supply is okay. I need calories. I need vitamins. I need nourishment. And as you go up from there, you can talk about freshness. I also think that there's value associated with knowing I'm going to buy that little container of strawberries, and the hands that the money went into live three streets over from me. Right. So there is something to be said for for keeping the exchange local. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also see where as we start to look at national food security, I mean, the baby formula crisis is a fantastic mm-hmm. example, right? It's mm-hmm. the food supply and agriculture and everything that feeds into it is not even just necessarily grains and, and vegetables. It's, it is also some of those processed things. When we think about the concentration, you know, one of the, the previous conversations we had that I think might apply here is really about the rate at which sustainable change can happen. And so it seems exciting to make a lofty goal to say, okay, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030, right? We'll just make that up. But is the system ready for that? And it's really no different if we're talking about trying to incentivize consumers to switch to EVs versus using fossil fuel powered vehicles. There still has to be a sufficient charger network. There still has to be enough powers to come through those chargers. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but wonder if the same isn't true on the agricultural side of things, that yes, we can allocate money to help farmers start to make this transition, but the devil is always in the details, right? And is the research being done around how viable this is right now? Because so much of what's involved in agriculture Love your example of the supernatural extra rich fertilizer that may or may not have been been used as a weapon against people. That's never changed, right? That's that's a cycle. That's a process that hasn't changed in in hundreds and thousands of years. And you just wonder to what extent, regardless of investment, are we going to be able to actually alter how all of that works together? That. Oh my gosh, that seems like a much bigger question than any of us is necessarily prepared to address, especially based on headlines. I agree. It's it's almost like I don't I don't think there's anybody who's saying whether it's I, like I loved your your EV example. You know, for for me, like I don't drive an electric car, but it's not because it's like you know what, screw the earth, not worried about it, let it burn. <laughs> I, that's that's not what anybody's yeah. saying. But are they economical? Are they affordable? Do I have to change my driving patterns because there's not even, you know, like you said, the infrastructure to support this change? I think everybody's on board, but let's do it the right way. It's kind of similar to, I think I saw an article once where they were talking about um, trying to do EV for like military equipment. And it's like, uh, we can't be serious right now, right? Like, what, what are we, you want <laughs> prototypes of EV for the military? Like, what are we, yeah. what are we talking about? So it's really... And, and this happens in business too. And I, I think that's a really awesome parallel to draw where it's like, hey, we have this real lofty goal. Everybody's on board. We can do it. Let's make the change now. But who's who's stopping to say, is now the right time? Do yeah. we have everything in place that we need? And that's overlooked. Um, and I think overlooking something that large and on that grand of a scale, 
what has the potential if it doesn't go well to be catastrophic. So these are the things we just need to take into account. Um, and then also, I think what it comes down to when we start talking about regulations and laws and rules, I think a lot of it, which is really interesting, you know, with some of the other headlines we're seeing about, um, I'll say trust and confidence, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'll just ask the audience, right? Please don't answer unless you're going to do so like <laughs> professionally. But here's the question. Do you trust the government enough to control how your food is handled? Like, really? Like, so for me, it's like, what is this really about? Is this really about health and improving the earth? And if it is, then I'm sure we can find a solution that makes sense. Well, why are we moving to it so quickly without taking all these other variables into account? So. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because in an episode like this, in a conversation like this, which Mm -hmm. happens all the time, usually off mic, but people are chatting about these these big issues and right. trying to figure out how they think, trying to figure out how others think. And it's simple enough to talk about something like agriculture as an industry. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, we're really talking about people and families. You know, I think farming is an awful lot like you know, being a first responder, like being in the military. It tends to be sort of a family tradition if you work in that industry. And so we're genuinely talking about people. And for those of us who don't necessarily live in agricultural areas to understand, it certainly requires some empathy and some more understanding. Uh, How can those of us who live in more urban areas or who live geographically distant from where most of the farming is taking place, how can we understand the realities that urban communities and family farms and even commercial farmers are dealing with. How would you suggest we try to empathize in that way? Well, well, this, this may sound silly, but it kind of like what I was saying about nine meals away from anarchy, right? It's like, do people need to be reminded that the grocery store itself doesn't grow your food? You know, whether that's produce or meat or even that bag of your favorite bag of chips, it's, I would say the parallel, it's very similar to way back, so at least it seems that far ago, to remember the um, the freedom convoys and the trucker movements, yes. specifically you know, all across the US. That was a little bit uh, quieter, though. Canada was, had a lot of steam and momentum. But Canadians uh, know how to strike. Can yeah, I they do. Say? And, they, and they were still <laughs> polite. so much fun. Still- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But... Um, but you're right. These these industries, it's they're not just the backbone of an economy. Um, it's it's the backbone of life as we know it today. And so, in this microwave, digital, faster, quicker, more, 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 more world, I think people have really been become, become disconnected from reality and just the basics. So that's yeah. why I say it may sound silly, but remember where your food comes from. So ultimately. I think in this case, what people need to remember is where does your food come from and what would you be able to do about it if it stopped? So the answer to that is, okay, then I would have to shop local, support local. I I think that's what it comes down to. So, Absolutely. Now, Chris, I love having you back every month and I'm not going to say what it is, but we already have a fabulous topic picked out for July's episode. So anybody that's catching us now, make sure four weeks from now, check back and make sure, I'm sure you listen every week, but definitely make sure you catch Chris when he comes back in July. 
Chris, if people heard this conversation and want to learn more about Una or connect with you, where would you direct them to go? Uh, so I am on LinkedIn. It's Chris with a K, K-R-I-S. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn. You could message me there. Um, you can also visit our website. It's una, una.com. And if you go to About Us, um, I should have a profile out there. Um, and you can click on it. It'll route, route you to me. Or you can just send me a direct email. It's Chris, K-R-I-S, at una.com. It's always fun to have you on, Chris. Thanks so much for being back. Thanks for having me. Talk soon, Kelly. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero Podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for the Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.